Uh, and lastly, uh, by putting Treasury at the centre of climate modelling again, uh, building on the new approach to climate risks, costs and opportunities which were included as a start in last week's budget documents. That is the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, speaking yesterday, and yesterday was November 2, at the Outlook Conference organised by the Melbourne Institute from the University of Melbourne and the Australian Newspaper. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations, and this is the latest episode. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Last week's budget handed down by Mr Chalmers should have in fact been all about the climate. But yesterday, or on November 2, that was the only reference he made to the climate. Whenever somebody like Mr Chalmers turns out to speak, no matter where he goes, there's always a team of reporters and photographers following him about. And you can hear the photographers in the background, their cameras clicking away, and occasionally they brush past the microphone. Let's have a listen now to what Mr Chalmers said at the Outlook Conference. But first we hear the Vice-Chancellor from the University of Melbourne, Duncan Maskell, introduce the Treasurer. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, before I begin I acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which we meet today and I pay my respects to Indigenous Elders, past and present, and I acknowledge all Indigenous people who are present today. Uh, and in beginning, following Abigail, I also add my own welcome on behalf of the University of Melbourne to all participants in this year's Outlook Conference. The University of Melbourne has a number of different institutes, part of its broad family. Uh, you will have heard of the Doherty Institute, no doubt, during the pandemic. But the Melbourne Institute is one of our longest standing institutes and it does a fantastic job uh, in the non-science areas, uh, which are just as important as I, as I think I said on that video, uh, which I think very is, is something we must remember. The social sciences and the arts and humanities more broadly are an incredibly important part of what we do in the university and of what the nation needs if it's going to be successful. Um, this is a fantastic occasion where top quality academic work led by people like my colleagues at the Melbourne Institute can intersect in a really, I hope, really helpful way with people who are actually enacting social and economic policy in this country. I think it's, it's almost an article of faith for me that universities need to be helping uh, to get world-class research, data gathering, analysis out into a, a broader public domain such that it helps to inform the argument. We need to be critical friends of government. We need to work together with government to work through difficult and interesting policy matters and to try to help government get to a better policy position. We might not agree all the time, but we can have a respectful relationship uh, with, with the government and with, with, with the press indeed, where we can have a better debate and a higher quality discussion around uh, what we need to do uh, to become a better place for, for all. Um, I acknowledge Mr Paul Kelly and his colleagues from the Australian and of course I acknowledge Professor Abigail Payne and all my colleagues, colleagues from the University for getting this on. It is a really great pleasure to welcome the Federal Treasurer, Dr Jim Chalmers, to give our first conference keynote address this morning. As everyone is well aware, Dr Chalmers has just introduced his first Federal Budget since they were elected in, in May. And that is, of course, the first Labor budget in nine years. Uh, it has certainly been introduced during economically very challenging times and geopolitically very challenging times. 
Uh, and I must say, uh, no matter what you think of the budget, it really has gone down a lot better than the recent budget that uh, went down in Britain under the Prime Minister Trust, which is my home country. What a shambles. Uh, anyway, I'm glad to say my citizenship papers are in. <laughs> Anyway, before being sworn in as uh, in this year as the Treasurer, uh, last May, uh, Jim Chalmers has served as Shadow Minister for Finance and as Shadow Treasurer. Uh, after first being elected to Parliament for the Division of Rankin in 2013. Prior to being an MP, he was Executive Director of the Chiefly Research Centre and the Chief of Staff to the Deputy Prime Minister and Treasurer. Uh, Jim Chalmers is a graduate of two of our other great universities, the Australian National University and of Griffith University and he has published two books, including one on the global financial crisis and Australia's response to it, which was published by Melbourne University Publishing, I'm glad to say. Uh, my research team tells me that Jim is also only the second Australian treasurer in history to hold a PhD after Dr Jim Cairns. Uh, as an educational leader, I have to say, I think that's a very good thing. Anyway, uh, to deliver this morning's keynote address, please join me in welcoming the treasurer of Australia, Dr Jim Chalmers. try and leave some of those comparisons uh, historical and otherwise alone for the time being. Um, can I begin by acknowledging uh, the traditional custodians of these lands, their culture uh, and customs and thank Uncle Tony for his uh, words of welcome at the start. Uh, can I uh, thank uh, Abigail and Michelle uh, for kicking us off this morning uh, and Duncan of course for the kind introduction. And in doing so, can I thank in particular uh, the Australian uh, and the Melbourne Institute for getting us together uh, once again. Uh, a lot's happened in the 60 years since the Institute was formed. Uh, and uh, for precisely one third of that, uh, this conference has become a bit of an institution in its own right for policymakers and thinkers and commentators and journalists as well. And it's great to see uh, so many of you here uh, in Melbourne today. Uh, I think this year does come at an especially useful time. I'm not going to pretend that the budget was scheduled intentionally in October to come in eight days after, eight days before uh, the Melbourne Institute and Australian Conference, but that's how it's turned out. Uh, and so we're in the middle of what is a pretty frenetic time uh, for the Australian Treasurer. I woke up this morning in Hobart. Uh, I'll finish the day in Perth. Uh, and I'm really pleased that I'm able to spend some time with you in, uh, in Melbourne in between. So it's a frenetic time, but I think a really perfect time, really, uh, to take stock, not just of the budget, of course, uh, but to take stock of these uh, difficult uh, global circumstances that we find ourselves in, uh, the growing challenges that we face as a country as a consequence of that, uh, and given the pretty complex terrain that all of us in our different uh, ways are trying to traverse. Uh, the journalists in the room would call this period that we're in right now the, the budget sell, um, but uh, I see things a little bit differently. Uh, I think this period now, uh, after the first budget of the Albanese government, uh, is an opportunity for us to engage in uh, more of a, an honest assessment uh, of our economy uh, and our budget about the good things that we have going for us uh, and the big things that we have confronting us as well, uh, where we are and where we need to get to, 
Uh, and important to that, of course, is the choices, the policies and the plans which were central to that first budget uh, Tuesday last week, uh, which make a good start uh, in terms of dealing with some of the issues that you will grapple with throughout the course of today uh, as we go about uh, determining and working together and collaborating uh, on the kinds of choices that we need to make into the future. So a long way of saying today is a good opportunity uh, and opportunity as the title of the conference uh, uh, um, infers is why we're here. Uh, not just why we're here though at a conference, for some of us uh, the idea of uh, providing more opportunities for more people in our communities is the reason why we're here in the first place, certainly in my case and I think for many of you as well. Uh, opening the doors of opportunity, as the Prime Minister said on election night, those are five words that do, I think, sum up our objective uh, and set out our direction uh, as policy makers and policy shapers around the room. And what I'd like to do this morning is to try and uh, position the budget in that context, uh, but to talk primarily uh, about the biggest challenge that we have in our economy right now, which is the inflation challenge. And so of the, the many ways of uh, framing and reframing what we presented last week in that budget, uh, of all of the new policies and plans and all of the commitments that were funded, uh, I really hope that one thing sticks. I really hope that one impression sticks about the budget and that this was a responsible budget defined by the times and designed for the times. Uh, it was about investing in the care economy, it was about dealing with widespread skills and labour shortages, it was about investing in the drivers of economic growth, uh, but it was influenced primarily by inflation uh, and fundamentally uh, it was a, a response to it. Uh, any responsible budget has to focus on this inflation challenge first and foremost because of uh, what the persistent, pervasive, unchecked inflation uh, could mean for our economy and for our people. We know that inflation limits our aspirations. It erodes the purchasing power of take-home pay. It reduces the value of hard-earned savings. It corrodes the real return on investment. It threatens the growth prospects of countries like ours. Uh, and it eats away at the foundations of opportunity. Uh, now, I know that there are Plenty of economists here in the room, and I'm sure that they don't need reminding, uh, that at the end of last year, uh, annual inflation was predicted to hit two and three quarter percent by the middle of this year. Uh, instead, as you know, it was 6.1 percent. And now, uh, Treasury forecasts it to peak around seven and three quarter percent by the end of the year. And the Reserve Bank just yesterday uh, upgraded their forecast for peak inflation to closer to 8%. Now the forces and factors shaping inflation have a different emphasis in different parts of the world. Uh, it's more of a demand driven problem in the United States than it is in Europe. It's more of an energy problem in Europe than it is in the United States. Uh, and it's a combination of both uh, in the United Kingdom. But pretty much everywhere, the supply side issues that began with the pandemic are still causing problems. Uh, and Putin's war is upending energy markets and sending prices skyrocketing. Uh, in Australia, as you know, we're dealing with a mix of these, as well as the effects of repeated flooding in parts of our country. Human tragedies first and foremost, but also with impacts that are felt through prices and the economy more broadly. 
Uh, our inflation here will also increasingly reflect the impacts of the war in Ukraine. Uh, currently, energy prices are adding 0.8 percentage points to Australia's headline inflation, compared to 4.2 in the euro area and 3.1 in the UK. Uh, but energy's contribution to domestic inflation will grow as retailers begin to renew wholesale contracts at a time when prices remain more than double their pre-war average. Uh, this is expected to lead to the significant price hikes that were included in the budget forecasts last week. Uh, and more persistent inflation than was previously projected, uh, higher for longer, uh, will be a consequence of this. Now, as I've said uh, recently and repeatedly, uh, we know that very high gas and electricity prices have and will put extreme pressure on Australians and on local industries. Uh, the longer term solution to this, of course, is more uh, cheaper and cleaner energy. Energy that's renewable and reliable and more affordable. Uh, in the shorter term, uh, we are considering uh, all of the available options before us to help shield Australians from the worst of these price impacts, including options that may not have seemed palatable even in the recent past. And it's this supply-side, energy-driven inflation that has captured most of our attention recently, but it doesn't encompass the whole problem. Uh, demand has contributed to price rises too, and that's what the Reserve Bank has obviously been responding to, including once again yesterday with their decision. Now, last week's budget uh, responded to this inflation challenge from both sides, from the supply side and the demand side as well. Uh, inflation was the primary consideration which influenced our approach to cost of living relief, to investing in the supply side drivers of growth, and also influenced our approach to budget repair. Uh, letting the substantial and welcome boost to revenues from higher commodity prices flow through to the budget was all about ensuring uh, that the budget didn't add to demand. Uh, that's how we lined up our fiscal policy with the bank's monetary policy and it's how we avoided the situation we saw in the United Kingdom in recent weeks. And that approach that I took last week in the budget marked a complete step change from the March budget and from recent budgets before it, where 2.6% real spending growth was the previous government's average before the pandemic. We're returning only 40% of improved tax receipts to the bottom line had become the historical norm. And where the fiscal impact of new policies stretched into the tens of billions of dollars, $30.4 billion in the March 22 budget alone, with $0 in savings on the expenditure side of the budget. Now, taking that same approach to the budget in October would have been wrong and risky, counterproductive and costly. It would have comp compounded inflation, compelled the RBA to go harder and sent the cost of living even higher. Now Treasury analysis shows that's exactly what would have happened if we had spent the tax receipt windfall in payments to households instead of returning it to the budget. And their work indicates that inflation would have increased by up to an additional half a percentage point over the next year 
uh, and interest rates would have been higher still if we had gone down that path. So our responsible budget, defined by its fiscal restraint, uh, avoided adding to inflation uh, and it addressed cost of living uh, pressure in more targeted ways. Uh, by returning 92% of improved tax receipts to the budget over the forward estimates, including 99% over the next two years when inflation is most problematic. By restricting real spending growth to an average of only 0.3% each year over the forwards, nearly 10 times lower than the pre-pandemic average under our predecessors. And by finding $22 billion in savings. And through policy decisions which limited the net budget impact to less than $10 billion over four years, with 85% of this for unavoidable or legacy spending left over from the previous government. Now, it would have been easier uh, and no doubt more popular uh, to splash borrowed cash on an expansionary cost of living response. But in the long run, that would have delivered a deeply damaging outcome for Australians and for their economy. So we made the responsible decisions, not the easy ones. We did what's right and necessary for the challenges that we confront. Now the responsible approach to inflation also informed our approach to rebuilding our fiscal buffers and beginning the long road of budget repair. And in an environment where all the risk for the global outlook is on the downside and uncertainty is elevated, this is more important than ever. By returning the windfall, we'll have more space to withstand future shocks. And there are two big numbers that I wanted to share with you today that highlight this pretty well. The first number is $50 billion. That's how much lower debt is for this financial year than if the extra money coming in had been spent on new decisions. The second number is $47 billion. That's how much the budget saves in interest payments over the medium term as a consequence of not spending that windfall over the forward estimates. And this is no temporary commitment that we've made. Our determination to rebuild these buffers will stretch beyond this first budget. And that's clear from our fiscal strategy, which builds in discipline as a core principle now and for the future, through a commitment to return the majority of any future tax revenue windfalls to the budget and to limit spending growth until government debt as a share of the economy is on a clear downward trajectory, making the budget and the, the economy more resilient at the same time. Now the broadly neutral fiscal stance that we achieved through banking revenue windfalls and working hard to limit spending growth deals with two core elements of the inflation problem. By not contributing to further demand and by preparing us for future shocks that may come at us from overseas. But the budget also provided cost of living relief that was effective without being inflationary and it took up the task of building a more resilient and more modern economy as well. That's why all of our core cost of living measures also come with an economic dividend. Cheaper childcare is the biggest on-budget measure, helping more people, especially women, back into work, adding the equivalent of up to 37,000 full-time workers into the economy a year. Paid parental leave helps boost productivity and participation. Our agenda for housing 
is designed to expand supply in a sector crying out for it and also to make it easier for people to live closer to where the jobs and opportunities are being created. And to get wages moving, we're training our workforce for the better, more productive, better paid jobs of the future labour market. All of this has been delivered while ensuring that people most get most at risk aren't falling further and further behind. Now while the inflationary environment helped deliver a revenue windfall, it also heaped more pressure uh, on the payment side of the budget. And you would understand in this room that changes in forecast economic parameters are responsible for around half of the payment variations in the budget. And a big part of this is a rise in the payments driven by our social safety net and our indexation system. Uh, indexation is working exact, exactly as it should and as it needs to, providing some cost of living relief by ensuring that the real value of government payments remains steady over time. Now, the impact of higher prices and wages on indexation is expected to lift government payments by $11.2 billion just over the next two years. And of that, and this is a new number today, about $3.1 billion over two years reflects the direct impact of electricity and gas prices on the CPI, uh, helping our most vulnerable to cope a little bit better uh, with rising power bills. Now, while this is necessary and it's right, these parameter variations are also costly. They make up a third of the upwards revision in payments for this financial year and next. And this is just one of the compounding pressures on the budget right now. Uh, higher interest rates, uh, higher spending across the NDIS, defence, aged care and hospitals will leave total government payments 67% higher in 2032-33 than they are right now, 67%. But nominal GDP is projected to only grow by 55% over the same period. So you can see the way that some of these pressures on the budget are building. So even after we've dealt with the inflation challenge, we will have to manage a budget weighed down by persistent structural spending pressures, uh, all while finding ways to help expand the capabilities of our people and the capacity of our economy. And doing this requires new thinking and it requires deeper thinking. It requires us rebuilding the evidence base as well for our forward-looking policies. Because to get better, more forward-looking economic policies, we need better, more forward-looking policy foundations. And I feel like in this room, perhaps I'm preaching to the converted. But I wanted to tell you that in my area, in my portfolio, uh, there are at least six ways uh, that I'm going to try to improve uh, the evidence base uh, of the decisions uh, that policy makers and policy shapers, uh, uh, the foundations of those decisions that people take. Uh, first, I'm going to make the tax expenditure statement a more accessible, more useful analysis of what tax concessions are costing the budget and their distributional impact as well. Uh, second, I'm going to work with my colleague Andrew Lee on putting in place an effective and rigorous evaluator general so we have a better sense of what works and what doesn't when it comes to our policies. Uh, third, by measuring what matters in Australia's first national wellbeing statement next year, 
Uh, I see this as a hard-headed way to gauge progress by recognising that a robust and resilient economy relies on more robust and resilient people and communities. Uh, fourth, I'm going to depoliticise the intergenerational report and I'm going to release it more regularly in the middle year of each parliamentary term. Uh, fifth, I'm going to work with Katie Gallagher to ensure gender considerations are at the very core of our work and our decisions, building on the good start that we made with gender responsive budgeting this year. Uh, and lastly, uh, by putting Treasury at the centre of climate modelling again, uh, building on the new approach to climate risks, costs and opportunities which were included as a start in last week's budget documents. Uh, every single budget, every single decision in every single budget involves a series of difficult judgement calls. And the toughest calls aren't always about what you should do, but sometimes they're about what you shouldn't do as well. And last week's budget was carefully calibrated to respond to the challenging economic environment that we're in. It wasn't a cash splash because it couldn't afford to be. It helps the Reserve Bank on the demand side. It strengthens our buffers amid an uncertain global outlook. It delivers responsible cost of living relief and it starts lifting the speed limit on our economy. Now this hasn't necessarily been a fancy or a flashy task. But our job is to get the economics right before the politics, doing what we must do now to confront inflation and eventually to conquer it. It'll get a little bit harder before it gets easier, but it will get easier. The inflation fight won't end as soon as we want it to, but it will end. And while we're doing that, we're laying the foundations for a better future as well. And that's why I am genuinely proud uh, of the budget that we handed down last Tuesday. Because while it's an inflation-focused budget above all else, it's a future-building budget as well. So that when we get through this tough period as a country, and we will, there will be more open doors of opportunity for more people in more parts of our country. Thanks very much. Scant reference by Mr Chalmers to the uh, climate crisis, a crisis that has and will decimate everything he's proposing. And what a contrast I experienced. On the way to the conference, I listened to a webinar, a webinar from Glasgow in Scotland that talked about how we should confront and deal with the climate crisis. There were real issues talked about realistically. And then I ended up at the Outlook conference in which the emphasis appeared to be totally on growth, which is the antithesis of what's needed if we are to genuinely confront the climate crisis. Well, that's the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with your friends. Until we talk again, please take care.